Watching for anything strange, the big thing is usually weight loss. If your frog is losing weight, there's maybe an issue. First, I'd start off by checking your temperatures, making sure there's nothing strange going on with your supplements, replacing them. Always, always do a fecal because they can have so many of these little parasites. And sometimes they are pretty easy to manage. Of all the things that can make an animal sick, the parasites are often one of the easier things to manage. Um, so watch for weight loss. If there's any chance that something's going on or you're worried at all, do a fecal. And then if they truly are looking sick after that, ideally we would have them seen by a vet. And in the short term, keep them in a little quarantine tub so that you can watch them closely. You can make sure they're eating. You can watch them defecating. You can get another fecal if you need to or a fecal that you know is clean and new. Um, Welcome back to the Animals at Home podcast. My name is Dylan Perrin and thank you so much for tuning in today. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Alec Brown, who is an exotic vet out of Guelph, Ontario, Canada. You may also be familiar with him as he is commonly featured in both Reptiliatus and Alpha Reptile YouTube videos as he is their vet. In this episode, we discuss why Dr. Brown chose to pursue a path of vet medicine for his career. We also discuss his home collection of the animals that he keeps, which are mainly focused around the genus Ufaga. So we discuss how he got those frogs brought into Canada. They're an incredibly rare genus this side of the border, north of the border for many of you and how he's actually having success breeding them and the challenges of working with the Ufaga genus and as well as how he cares for them, how he rigs up his misting systems and whatnot, and also how he approaches keeping them, keeping frogs from a vet perspective. And I think there's a lot of key areas in this conversation that will help us as just regular keepers who don't have that vet med knowledge of how we can actually bolster our care and improve our care just based off how a vet does it. So I think that part of the conversation was fascinating. And he also shares a few, I hesitate to use the word controversial, but he uses, he shares a few, you know, points of maybe some redirections that we should probably take within herpeticulture as far as what species we're keeping that are from a vet's perspective, someone that's in the sort of the front lines, seeing some of the animals that are ending up sick, you know, some, some of the species that maybe we shouldn't be keeping as uh, within the hobby. So that's an interesting part of the conversation as well. Let's jump into it. Enjoy. Dr. Brown, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. We've been talking about doing this one for so long. Of course, I've met you in person <laughs> twice at the Canadian Reptile Breeder Expo, and yeah. I always wanted to have you on, so I'm glad that uh, we're actually able to do this for, for real, and and uh, you know, this will be hopefully the first of many episodes to come. Uh, mm. Why don't we give everybody just a quick background? I, I think there will be some people who are actually familiar with you because you make uh, appearances, you have cameos in both <laughs> Mike Titula and, uh, of course, Dion Reptiliatus' right. videos from time to time, so you're already the famous uh, YouTuber vet, <laughs> but why don't you give us just a little right. background on uh, who you are and and your education and, and profession yeah i mean it's not very creative starting off points you could probably copy paste almost any of your other guests for the first like two minutes here of describing and it would be basically accurate grew up in like small town eastern ontario um, went herping a lot with my dad which really just meant quite catching garter snakes and green frogs and occasionally leopard frogs like that a lot really wanted to i guess to involve it as much in my life as I could. Eventually ended up keeping a few of them for like a few days or a couple of weeks or one tree frog over the winter. And that really spurred my interest further. In school, I liked the sciences a lot as well. Um, so kind of off and on keeping a few different reptile species through elementary school in the early years. High school, a little bit less so, more focused on actual schooling, less on the herps and stuff at home, but still had um, a couple things here and there. Then when I was graduating high school, I was kind of trying to decide what I wanted to do with my life. I knew I wanted to be employed. Uh, so I was looking through the different like university handbooks, 
programs and what you might expect to achieve after, like what potential job opportunities there are for each of the different majors you can choose. Um, so the animal bio one, liked most on the list, like animal research, veterinarian, a bunch of stuff like that. Went down that road. And if you want to do animal bio in Ontario, you're pretty much recommended to go to Guelph. It's much more challenging to do in most other universities. And then when I was doing my touring to make sure that's what I wanted to do with the different schools just before starting university, did a tour of the veterinary college as well. And on the tour, they said 100% of the people that get in will graduate and 100% of those people will get a job within the first six months based on the economy at the time. So I said, this is excellent. I'll just plan to get in there. All the hard work is the beginning before getting into vet school. Compare that to, I think, some other schools like medical school and dental school where there's a higher dropout rate during and sometimes you have challenging find time getting a job like law school. Mm-hmm. Um, so really liked the, um, the pragmatic aspect of veterinary school, but I wasn't sure that I could get in. Everybody says your grades changed quite a bit between high school and undergrad, but I thought it was a goal that I'd shoot for. Did very well in undergrad. I think the, the freedom to do what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it was really helpful in my specific case. So I managed to get into vet school. All this while, I've been interested in all animals, like we grew up with cats and dogs and a bunch of other reptiles and amphibians, but I guess most specifically interested in reptiles and amphibians. But I did not think that anybody would want to pay to take them to the vet. So I said, man, it would be great if I could be a reptile vet, but I, I don't think that job really exists. I got to pay the bills, so focus on dogs and cats, which I enjoy as well. Um, in veterinary school, I started just applying for extra practice, like practical research and stuff at the different veterinary clinics close by. Campus Estates uh, was one of them, and they saw exotic animals. So I thought, this is my number one. Applied there, I don't know, four or five times. They they threw my resume out every time (laughs) until the very last time when I was actually in veterinary school, and they brought me in, uh, started working there in 2015 or so, so in first year veterinary school. Really liked it, and then just ended up applying there when graduating as well like the mentorship, like the team already. So it was a, an easy fit. Started working there and we're pretty close to Toronto, maybe an hour from Toronto. So we have a pretty high population density within the area. And a lot of people are like, some people do take their reptiles to the vet. And it, it seems like most people in Southern Ontario were going to campus estates. There are definitely a few other clinics, Links Road and High Park and that sort of stuff in the GTA area but we were seeming to get a a pretty high percentage of them. And then they knew that I liked reptiles when scheduling. So the the receptionists and the team members all kind of directed them toward me. And so now I'm seeing a a huge caseload, probably 50% of my animals at this clinic, which is small animal plus exotics are reptiles. And then like a tiny, tiny fraction of amphibians. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. So what year did you graduate high school in 2010 or 20, 2009. And then I did one semester leap year. I was just a, a lazy, I guess you could say. I wanted to take, I wanted to really focus on the classes that I was taking. So I had a spare in all three semesters of my grade 12 plus the half grade 13. So we are, oh wait, grade 13. So we're almost, are, are you born in 91? Yeah, okay, December so, 91. Okay, so we're virtually the exact same age. Yeah, I thought Only that three days something apart. Something like that. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. So, so you know, obviously there's lots of people who are listening who will be thinking, yeah, I, I love animals. I would love to take an animal biology, you know, path in university. But that's that's actually quite different from pursuing veterinary med just mm-hmm. because, 
you know, like you said, there's research, there's all sorts of different paths you can go down with animal biology. And quite often, there's so many people that think they want to get into veterinary med, and then they actually see what it is, and they realize that's not at all what they want to yeah. do. It's, it's not it's not the type of work they're interested in. So were you worried about that at all? Or were you pretty much right off the top thinking you're going to be comfortable doing vet med? I mean, I, I didn't know. I had really no idea. I'd only been to the vet a handful of times with my parents when I was a kid. But I started volunteering in 2011, I think. I did maybe a, a day every couple of weeks at a clinic that my parents had taken our, our animals to. They were kind enough to let me come in. I really liked it, actually. I, I think the surgery really stood out to me. don't exactly know why, and I didn't expect that to be the case, but I thought it was so cool to be able to like work with your hands and actually fix an animal and make somebody's day better and the animal's life better. So volunteering, I thought I could do this. And then I got a job as a like a kennel attendant, basically the year after at a different clinic. And I really liked it as well there. So I thought, yeah, this is definitely something that I could see myself doing in the long run. So you were saying that about 50% of the animals you see now are in the exotic side. Is there a, mm-hmm. is it a pretty, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Can we all guess the sort of species that you're bringing, that you're seeing? Yeah. On, on, yeah. <laughs> Almost definitely. You could guess them being close to Toronto. I do get to, the luxury of seeing a few other more interesting species, especially knowing Dion with all of his stuff being close by. But I mean, number one, bearded dragon, definitely by far. Uh, after that's probably leopard gecko and then likely a ball python, corn snake, and then a red-eared slider. But we'll see the others too. And then are, are you, is it, is there a shift? I mean, you've only been, you know, practicing for, you know, however many years, but are you mm-hmm. starting to see more people bring their animals in for maintenance or is it pretty much, or the, you know, like checkups and whatnot, or is it, is it pretty much you're bring you're seeing sick animals or animals with, you know, kidney issues? And yeah. Whatnot? I think it's a little bit tricky to say, especially because the COVID restrictions, and the pandemic really affected the veterinary industry as a whole and the whole world as a whole, I guess. Uh, so that contributes to some change over the last couple of years, but I think that I'm very lucky where we are that we do get many more people bringing in for preventative, like herd health kind of thing for dog, for cows, sorry, preventative measures compared to just fire truck medicine where there's a problem. So they bring it in. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'd say on, in general, we're seeing more animals preventatively now than we were five years ago, six years ago when I started. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to imagine that you know, the more people do preventative medicine with their animals, the more affordable it will become as well, right? You know, if, if the yeah. people aren't bringing their animals to the vets, that's one of the reasons that it is kind of expensive, even though it's really not that expensive um, compared to even human medicine. In Canada, it's kind of a, it's confusing because we don't see medical bills, so we have no idea how much mm-hmm. we're actually paying exactly. for. So you have no idea how much that trip to the doctor costs. You're like, oh, that's free, yeah. but no, no, it's probably thousands of dollars. So we, when you go <laughs> right. to the vet, you don't know, and then you, or you know, you have to actually pay, so you do see the bill. Yeah. But I imagine that if if it was more popular to do that, we would start to see, you know, prices come down. Yeah, I think it's definitely in your best interest as a pet keeper to bring them in preventatively compared to after something's gone wrong. If a reptile or definitely an amphibian, which I imagine we'll talk about a little bit later, gets sick, sometimes it can be a while before we notice. And if we do notice and they're already quite sick, it can be extremely challenging to get them feeling better again. I mean, frogs being the classic example, if you have a sick frog, you probably have a dead frog pretty soon. It's, mm-hmm. it's really tough to bring them back again. Birds, similar sort of thing. So if we can see them shortly after the pet is adopted, can get the husbandry correct, that can solve almost all of our issues in captivity. Not all of them. We do see true illnesses that are not a result of captivity and husbandry errors, but 
almost all of them could be prevented if we saw them earlier on. Are there certain husbandry errors that you see commonly that are just the the standouts like constantly? Yeah, I I think it's, it's a little bit of a strange situation because I don't imagine that any of the listeners to the Animal at Home podcast will be making these errors. It's mostly first-time pet keepers and that sort of thing where you get a leopard gecko at the store, you bring it home, you put it in a little box with a bunch of sand and then almost forget about it. Right. So, but to answer the question, the things that I see most often, the leopard geckos with a stuck shed around their eyes or the eyes that seem to be like fused closed almost, I see probably once a day. It's very sad. It drives me crazy, but it's a huge problem in, in many first time leopard gecko keepers or even second time leopard gecko keepers. It's a bit of debate about why it happens. Probably a combination of a few things. Number one, I wonder about low humidity, just like any other shedding issue. If they're not lubricating the space between the old skin and the new skin, that shed can have a a difficult time coming off. And if it gets stuck around the eyelids, it can get kind of underneath the eyelids and cause a bunch of irritation and inflammation. Then it causes them to close their eyes, kind of wincing, like uncomfortable. And then they're not going to eat. Eventually, they likely won't eat. So they become more and more sick and they're not shedding properly further. So it can kind of spiral from there. And then there's also thought that a lack of vitamin A can contribute to the improper cells around the eyes themselves. I think it's probably involved. It gets a little bit complicated. We see red-eared sliders and we they often have these ear abscesses, like big lumps of bacteria around where their ears are. And the thought has always been that it's lack of vitamin A. But every time I look into it, I find these studies that say we cannot induce this in captivity. So they get a bunch of red ear sliders or box turtles. They give them no vitamin A. None of them develop these ear abscesses. I'd be happy to find a study where they where they show me that. And, and please, if anybody knows of anything like that, reach out. But for that reason, I say, oh, how much, how sure are we about this? I don't know. What I'd recommend is you make sure your leopard gecko and your turtle humidity is correct. And you're giving them multivitamin periodically. Mm-hmm. What about, you know, the pressure, because if, if I think of myself, if I was a vet, the, I would feel like there's a lot of pressure to have the answers to questions that patients <laughs> have, like, especially when it comes, to, like, like a good example is my snake isn't eating and someone brings in their rat, because that ex- experience happened to me earlier this year. I had that small Japanese rat snake that kind of went off food for two months or so. He's fine now and there was really nothing wrong with him, but it was one of those things where I, I took him to the vet. And I feel like if I was that vet in that situation, I would feel so obligated to find an answer. But a lot of times, <laughs> yeah. you know, do you, do you feel that pressure to to to, to troubleshoot yeah. till you get to the the end? Absolutely. I think that was one of the big eye opening moments during school and just after graduating, where a lot of the time we don't know what's going on. I don't have a definitive diagnosis in many of our patients, even dogs and cats, where we know so much more about them, relatively speaking, compared to reptiles. So I feel a lot of the pressure and. Usually how I approach it is we don't know why. We can probably find out going through this system of diagnostics. Um, And it it depends a lot on what the owner's motivations are. Some people want to know exactly what's happening, no matter what the cost is and how it may change your treatment plan. Other people say, I don't really care what's going on. I just want them to feel better and kind of have to tailor the diagnostic and treatment approach for both of those things. But it can be very challenging and frustrating to not have an answer. I mean, particularly ball pythons not eating, that's another big issue. So I have it being right up on a website that I, I print off and, and give to everybody nowadays. But it can be a frustrating aspect of the job. Yeah, especially something like that where you're dealing with an animal that, you know, by all accounts is healthy and mm-hmm. you're not, there's nothing popping up as, you know, it's some, something that's wrong. But 
the person would want an answer. My snake hasn't eaten in six months. What do I do? And yeah. it's, it's just, a, yeah, I, I can imagine the stress. It gets even more complicated, I think, with reptiles specifically because the diagnostic options are much more limited. You can do a physical exam, just like you'd start any appointment with. You can probably do blood work and probably do some x-rays. But when I do blood work on lizards, the reference ranges that I have to look at. So you take the blood work sample, they give you a bunch of numbers for these different enzymes and stuff that they're looking at. And then next to those numbers, they'll have a reference range where 95% of the animals that we test that are normal are between this value and this value. But the values are so much wider for the reptiles and amphibians because their sample size is much less that it becomes a lot more tricky to interpret. Like how accurate is this? And then for some reason, sometimes we just don't see much on the blood work. I think probably related to how the, um, the diagnostics were developed. Like we developed them with people in mind and then maybe dogs and cats after that and horses and cows and the common animals. And then we're kind of trying to extrapolate that information into our exotic animals. And it's a lot more tricky to, to truly know what's going on. As an example, we test for amylase, which is like a pancreatic enzyme. Dogs and cats very often, very informative a lot of the time. And reptiles have seen it like thousands and thousands of times normal. I call the lab and I say, what's going on here? Is, is something going on with this pancreas? And they say, uh, we don't know. We don't think it's actually related to anything in a lizard or a snake. So it becomes a lot more challenging because we don't have as good diagnostics to evaluate things. And I mean, sometimes they can look totally fine. And then we open them up like a bearded dragon for a surgery or a spay. And they're just full of these disgusting ovaries. And they're almost septic and at risk of passing away. Mm. Very challenging. Is there any medical conditions or things that you... When, the, when it's brought to you in a patient that you think, oh, this is the, the most annoying or, or the most heartbreaking <laughs> thing that you have to do. Like, I, I would think like the, the snake not eating example is probably one of those things was like, oh God, I got to, you know, try to troubleshoot this yeah. with this person, even though there's probably not going to be an end. But is there, is there other things where you, when you look at the chart coming up, you're like, oh, I don't like these. <laughs> Dreading the appointment? There yeah. definitely are. Um, the snake not eating is not one of them. Okay. Because we have a few like guidelines and there's always some room for error, but I always tell people if... If it's a ball python, for example, if it's not been eating for more than six months, if it's lost 10% of its body weight, or if there's something else going on in addition to the lack of appetite, then I start getting worried. So if we've got a respiratory infection or signs of that, like mucus around the mouth, or there's a wound or something like that, start paying attention. If not, then I say, we've got a long time to wait. Here's a list of things you can do in the meantime, make sure your husbandry is perfect. And then we'll kind of touch base periodically over the next few months. So Snake not eating, often it's a pretty helpful step because most of the time those are new owners as well and they can kind of get in on the ground floor and create yeah. some husbandry years. The the one that I hate the most, almost anything related to turtles, actually. Turtles I find very challenging. Uh, and then the leopard gecko with the eye, that one I don't like because it's often, I found at least personally in my experience, pretty challenging to get them feeling better again. We can fix the husbandry, we can give them the vitamin A, we can do all these medical steps like flushing the eyes and giving them meds and stuff, but often it's weeks and weeks before they're better. And if the owner is not really vigilant about treating and checking in on things every day and coming back for their rechecks, it just goes downhill again. So I find that very frustrating. And then getting back to the turtles, because they just live for so long, they're like little tanks. They can survive almost anything. It's often been decades where this animal's not quite been kept right. So then I see them, I say, oh, I think you're probably making a few mistakes here. And that's why it's sick today. And they say, it's been like this for 20 years. There's no way that's the case. Uh, it's got to be something else. Can't you just give me a shot? So anything going on with turtles, especially turtles and their husbandry, leopard gecko eyes, 
And then, I mean, the neurological snakes, especially pythons for wondering about IBD or inclusion body disease, that would be heartbreaking. Thankfully, I've been very lucky and I haven't found any cases where I'm suspicious of that. While I was at school, we had a few and it's tough because it, it requires or our recommendation is depopulation. So essentially humane euthanasia for all of the animals in the collection because it can be so dangerous and it's so infectious. infectious. Like almost every one of the boas or pythons affected with it will will become very sick and is at risk of death. So, okay, wow. So if someone has a collection and they do test positive for, for IBD, the, the actual recommendation yeah. is that the whole collection goes, even if they're not a boa or python or? Uh, so there's some more nuance to it than that. I mean, theoretically, we could also say you can, as long as the snake seems to be having a good quality of life, like it's eating and getting around well and seems happy enough, um, continue on. But we really recommend not bringing any new animals and definitely not selling animals that they have or rehoming them in any way because you could be spreading it around. Boas and some other snakes can have the inclusion body disease and they, they don't often show any clinical signs. But then if you bring it into a home with a python, they're much more at risk for developing the clinical signs. So you can have a totally normal boa, sell it to somebody. They've got a handful of ball pythons. The boa passes the sorry the inclusion body disease to the other snakes, and they can all die in like a few months or so. So if you have a bunch of snakes, if you're planning on breeding and selling and, and redistributing, then we often end up recommending humane euthanasia of, of everybody. But so, of course, there are other options. Is that a it's a virus? Yeah. Uh, Arena virus, I think, is the the group of viruses, inclusion body disease. I don't hear much about it as much anymore. Yeah. Like I mean, it's always virus. like you see every first time snake owner, like, I think my snake has IBD, like it's stargazing. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just like, oh, it's just like periscoping, like looking at the lights or something. Right. But it's everyone's so panicked about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the clinical signs are just representative of neurological disease. And if you look at the textbook, by Mater, they list like almost everything can cause neurological disease. So, there are many options to explain why a ball python is stargazing or seems to be having an altered mentation where they're behaving strangely. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk. We'll talk a little bit more about vet med in a little bit, but I, I'd love to not, to know more about your personal collection, as you know, your your yeah. herpeticulture in, in your home. So, what are you keeping right now? Yeah, right now it's mostly frogs, so little poison dart frogs, and I keep a, a trio of Lagodactylus Williamsi, the electric blue day gecko. I've had a few things. In the past, um, I think these are definitely where I'd be sticking for a long time. As I've kind of grown as a keeper and as a veterinarian and just like in society, really focusing more on some small animals because then I can keep them in relatively large enclosures, enclosures for a much smaller price. Like all of my frogs, the big frogs at least, they're in at least a 30 by 24 by 18. The goal is to have everybody in a 36 to 18, 36 and two frogs per enclosure. So they've got a huge amount of space relative to their body size compared to what it's really even possible for a ball python or bearded dragon or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So mostly small animals. I also love the plants and I think that really adds an aspect to the, the keeping of them where the, the enclosure can change over time as the plants grow. It gives me something to do adding new plants or trimming them or general maintenance, that kind of thing. And I, I forget if this was, if we had hit record, but before you were saying that uh, you, you'd started keeping bearded dragons, or I'm not sure if that's what you started with, but that's <laughs> what you were, were the, what were some other, the larger species that you kept? Yeah. I, the first ones I had, I mean, I had a, like a garter snake for a couple of weeks and a great tree frog for a few months. And the first true like pet store pet were green anoles or annals. 
had a couple of them in little terrariums. So it started off pretty small. I think my parents were saying, you can have these lizards, they're $10, and we can give them a small box. Mm -hmm. They weren't upset about spending a whole bunch of money on stuff. After that, I think I had a ball python for a number of years and a bearded dragon around the same time. I adopted it from like a friend of mine at school. He was a few years old. And then getting into undergrad, I started keeping a few more bearded dragons or two more bearded dragons, and I bred them for two seasons. A terrible, terrible idea. I mean, it was fun and it was interesting and engaging, but it was a huge amount of money that I spent to breed these bearded dragons. I found homes for them all really reasonably, and I'm confident that they went to good homes, but we don't need more bearded dragons. I was losing tons of money breeding them, so I wouldn't recommend it um, breeding them. I highly recommend them as a pet. I think they're the perfect reptile for most people. And then after that, leopard geckos. I had a few leopard geckos in undergrad, sorry, in vet school. And then I moved on to the frogs and the, the day geckos. Mm-hmm. What got you into the direction of the frogs? Do you remember? I've always thought they were just incredible looking, especially seeing them at expos and seeing them in books and on nature documentaries. It's just like, I still find it unbelievable that they're real. These tiny bright animals are jumping around in the wild and they're not immediately extinct for whatever reason. So I thought it's amazing that they're real. Um, and I thought the enclosures were so cool, like a little slice of the jungle in your house. Um, I think those are the first aspects that I noticed about them. And then what, because now you have quite a collection and we'll get into some of the more, you know, rare species that you have and you have you know, some, some of the rare species in Canada, really. But do you remember what you first initially got? First pair, uh, I had super blue aratus. Okay. I saw them like four times in the few years that I had them. I was pretty annoyed. Like they were just hiding all the time. And maybe there were some husbandry changes that I could make to encourage them to be out, but I a bit frustrated there, which is why I don't keep the Eratus anymore. Super blue Eratus, um, and I had some Terribilis, the, the golden dart frog, for a little while as well. All kind of moved away when I was at school, and then I had to do some traveling, and I just wasn't able to care for things as well as I wanted to. And then, so now, why don't, why don't you list some of the, the animals you're working hmm. with? It's So that all of the frogs that I have are called the obligates, so the genus Ufaga, which means egg eater. Um, I've got two groups of Pumilio now. They're the small ones that are relatively common, like a couple hundred dollars per frog in Canada at this time. Um, so the Almirante, they're probably the most common Pumilio that I know of anyway, excluding the blue jeans, which is a whole other thing. And I just actually at the last expo got some Rio Calubre, which are these little blue dart frogs, are kind of like little blueberries. And then the big ones are the Ufaga histrionica Picassi very similar to the Anchikaya, if you're familiar, and Lamani, Limani, Lamani, uh, Red. And then I have uh, a single Bahia Salensis and another one coming in tomorrow. Oh, wow. But those are histrionic as well. Uh, yeah, that's amazing. And so those obviously are quite rare uh, in Canada, yeah. at least. I'm not sure. Are you, are you one, you're one of the only ones working with that? I think that there are there are five of us at the moment, potentially six. There's some guy out in Alberta that was messaging me a few years ago, and then he's kind of gone dark, so I don't exactly know if he has anything at the moment. He got them, brought them in a few years ago, the CITES list. So five of us brought in, I think, 40 frogs last year. Um, I think a couple of them escaped, but the rest are doing well. And most of us are having some froglets and breeding success at the moment. And then uh, we're doing another import 
coming in tomorrow for, I think, four more people. Um, so in total, I think there are 40 of these large applicants plus a handful of offspring in Canada. In the States, they're a lot more common, but they're still pretty rare. And for some context, they're, they're generally a few thousand dollars per frog or at least a thousand dollars per frog, which is unbelievable the first time you hear it. Yeah, yeah. So if you added the total all-in cost for tomorrow's box and the box from last year, what would that number look like? I think that's 90000 90, for everything. So that's crazy. Canadian dollars, maybe slightly under that, 80 to 90. Yeah, that is amazing. So that's a, that's a serious, I mean, obviously that wasn't all on you. That was split by a bunch of people and there yeah. was, you know, five or six people dividing it by, but it's still a pretty serious commitment, especially when you're talking about yeah. something as uh, as sensitive as a dart frog. It's not like you're getting in something hardy that, you know, mm-hmm. I'm sure there was some uh, trepidation there to bring, to spend that yeah. much. <laughs> the last, so last year was the first time that I kind of organized things. I. I was not having a great time with it for a long while. We originally planned to bring them in in the spring of 2022, but CITES was delayed for a few weeks. Uh, so we had to wait for another list for some reason. And then temperatures were getting warm. We had a date scheduled July 1st, but July 1st was 40 degrees at the Toronto airport. So even if these frogs are on the tarmac for an hour and 40 degrees, they're probably not going to make it. And that's a, a huge loss for the frogs financially as well. So then we had to postpone it and there was all this back and forth between that. Like, oh, should we just postpone it? Should we bring them in? I don't want to wait anymore. What if there's another pandemic restriction? We can't bring them in for years. Eventually he said, they're not going to live, bring them in here. It's not responsible. We'll postpone it to the fall. And then in the fall, CITES we had to apply for again because it only lasts for six months. And it was like twice as long as it was supposed to be. We we're supposed to get CITES in a month and it took two months. So then we're like, oh, is it going to get too cold now? There's like, just such a small window for shipping in Canada, particularly frogs, that it was very stressful for me being pretty inexperienced, deciding when to take it in, if it's safe to do so, and then also being fairly responsible for everybody else's money. Yeah, yeah. So obviously the fall was the time to do it, considering you're doing that again in the <laughs> fall. Yeah, I, we had planned. So we brought them in October 21st last year. Perfect weather. It was a dream. All the frogs looked great. Uh, they all did very well. Nothing was sick. So great work from Ivan at Tesaurus to Columbia. Um, so then a few months later, people were saying, I kind of want to bring in some more frogs. I wasn't originally interested. I had no desire for any more. It was so much work and so much stress. And I'm not getting compensated at all for it. It's not like I'm making money. I'm just doing it to try to increase the number of frogs in Canada. But a couple of people I know pretty well were very interested. They said, okay, we'll do it. And I said, okay, this time we'll make it easy. We'll just plan for the fall. We'll do CITES a few months earlier. So we've got lots of time for that. And all of the causes for my stress previously won't won't be there anymore. Lo and behold, we applied for CITES August 1st this year. We don't get it until like mid-October. There was a huge delay, I think, because the the woman responsible was on vacation and nobody knew. Oh, so no. The paperwork was sitting on her desk forever. And we were just like, where's our CITES? It's going to get cold again. So we scheduled it. It's it's a bit colder than I'd like it to be tomorrow, but I think we should be okay. So fall, spring is really the only time that I'd recommend it. Yeah, yeah. What's the temperature tomorrow in, in Guelph? I think here it's like five degrees or so. At the okay, Toronto so that's airport. not too bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think as long as we're above zero, be happy. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about Tesoros de, de Colombia and how that organization works? I know Ivan's been on a few podcasts, so to learn more, I'd kind of investigate those. But so Ivan, he's kind of the the man responsible. He had 
some sort of a deal worked out with the Colombian government where they brought in a few frogs, the Ufago Lamani, to start from the wild on permits owned by the government, I believe, bred those frogs in captivity, and then sold some of the offspring to people like me in an attempt to fundraise for conservation. So they brought in X number of frogs, and they're required to release X plus Y number of frogs, so more frogs than they took it, taken in, um, funded by pet keepers around the world. So then he makes these price lists a couple times a year and sends them out to a few people, like representatives from the countries, and then they kind of distribute it amongst the people, get orders, and then have them shipped. Everything is like very smoothly run most of the time. Like they've got all protocols for everything. Frogs are all in excellent health. They've got great quality control and standards and that sort of thing. And maybe most importantly, we're actually contributing to some sort of conservation. One of the big reasons that people cite um, why they keep reptiles or why it's important to be allowed to keep reptiles is to promote conservation, kind of this invisible arc theory. And in this instance, I feel confident that we're actually truly making a difference by providing more funding for the government and more funding for the frogs in the wild. I'm sure there's some corruption involved in every government, especially Colombia, but I'm confident that at least a large majority of those finances are going where they need to be. And the frogs that you're getting are essentially captive bred frogs or yeah. however you want to say it, farm bred or whatever they are. I mean, they, their, their parents yeah. might be wild caught, but you're not pulling from the rainforest. Exactly. Yeah. They, they took just a few, they bred those a bunch of times. And then I don't know which, which generation these are, or F2 or three or something like that, that they sell off to the other people. And I believe they are all in an enclosure. I know a few people from the States went down there and visited um, a couple of weeks ago. And I don't think that, that any of them are like outdoor enclosures. I think Wikiri does that where they have outdoor frogs and they're bred and then brought inside later on prior to sale. But these ones are like truly captive bred frogs in Colombia. Mm -hmm. Is there something specific that drew you to the Ufaga genus? Yeah, that's it. Because, I mean, all these frogs look incredible. Like even the Azurius, the, the classic blue dart frog, first time you see it, like, wow, that's amazing. And that frog is like $60 most of the time. So why mm -hmm. not just have a pair of these Azurius? I don't know what it was. There's a few things. I like the general shape of their body, like the Tinctorius. They've got funny a funny posture and like a funny back. I know a few people kind of share that sentiment. So that's always been a little bit of a turnoff for me. Um, like you're talking about that sort of like angular, angular back yeah. situation. Yeah. And then if you look at like a close up of their face, they look crazy. They're goofy looking if you look at them up close. Um, so the shape of them, and then they're very, very bold, like referencing those erratus, the super blues that I had that I saw four times in a, a year, a few years. These frogs, every time I look in there, I can find all of them. They're often perched like front and center, right on the stick in the very middle of the enclosure, singing their hearts out. So that tells me that they're probably pretty confident and happy where they are. So I feel better about keeping them and I can enjoy them. I can look at them. I can actually know that I have pet frogs. So the boldness, their general shape. And then it's also a bit of a challenge, maybe an eco thing where not many people are successfully breeding them in captivity yet. And I really wanted to kind of prove that I've advanced my herp care and keep them properly. Well, let's uh, branch off of that topic. So maybe you could tell us how they're set up to the, you already mentioned the sizes, but just in general, how they're set up, but then also what, what is, do you think is giving you success when it comes to breeding? Like you said, there, there's some serious challenges when it comes to breeding obligates. So yeah. maybe uh, go from there. 
So the current setups that I have, um, the Pumilio, they're a lot easier to breed, I think. A um, few reasons why we can get into, but keep them in 18, 18, 24 as a pair, and sometimes end up with like five froglets at a time, and I'll pull them out once they're a few months old. They seem to get along well enough. Um, live planted with Mist Kink setup, automatic hydration, that sort of thing. Lots of bromeliads for them to lay eggs in and raise their tadpoles in. Um, and then I give them LED lighting and UVB lighting. I should say I provide UVB or I offer UVB to all of the animals. Many people out there keeping frogs and many other animals, they don't provide any UVB and they seem to be having great success. So it doesn't seem like we need them to have UVB to breed successfully in captivity. But when we look at the studies from other animals like corn snakes and a bunch of other stuff, it's probably helping or improves their quality of life or improves their general calcium blood levels, makes it more similar to frogs in the wild or animals in the wild. So I provide UVB 6%, like a half range shade dweller sort of thing, T5 bulb. And I just make sure there's lots of shaded opportunity. So there's tons of foliage in there. They could be under no UVB all day if they wanted to, and it be, wouldn't be challenging at all. Or they can get out and go in the open air and get access to UVB. I have it on for 12 hours a day. I know that um, Tesoros to Columbia, they do something a little bit differently. They have UVB on for like a couple hours per day, but it's a much higher percentage. I don't know what kind of research they've done into that. It sounds a little bit strange, but it seems to be working. And I think Wikiri is doing the same thing where they have a really high concentration of the UVB over a short time compared to a lower over the long time. And then I give them fruit flies. Um, I don't offer them anything else. They might be able to take tiny crickets, these pretty big frogs. But fruit flies tested with calcium, Rapashi calcium plus every feeding, excluding Saturdays where I alternate between Supervite and vitamin A. And it's important that we discard these supplements. It's something that a lot of new reptile keepers, they don't realize that the supplements can expire after a while. So I throw them out every few months or so. Mm. Um, so I'm having some success. I know a friend of mine, Chris Stewart, he's he's in Aurelia now, but he is having just crazy success with the Lamani. I think he has like 15 froglets from, from two pairs in, in a year. Everybody else were having like, oh, one or two per pair per person and this guy's crushing it pretty similar care. I don't think he's providing UVB. So, I mean, there may be some things that I can change and I know other people are having some more success. I think the biggest reason that they were not doing well historically is probably just the quality of the animals coming in. If you're getting smuggled in animals or animals that are kind of gray market frogs, they're much more likely to be in poor shape full of parasites from outside or just stress from being in a captive environment that they're not used to. And then once you get them as a new owner, they're even more stressed from changing houses and then they can really crash quickly. I don't know, maybe we've just gotten lucky so far, but I find them fairly similar to most other dart frogs, provided you're paying attention, you're giving them the calcium and there's enough space for them. And then I don't know if we mentioned as far as just having like the female feeding the tadpoles, is is that something that you just, you're just making sure you're misting enough to make sure the bromeliads are full and that there's water in there and the you know, things aren't drying up? Yeah. Some people are much more active about it than I am. I, I don't do anything really. I make sure that there are few bromeliads in the enclosure that have lots of water in them at all times, but I don't go around periodically flushing them out with spring water or something else. Like I know some people do. The risk there is that if I'm using RO water for everything, there's very little calcium in it. So maybe there's less calcium in the water and then the froglets aren't doing as well because they need to take that in. 
and then maybe they're getting full of dirt and other stuff that's affecting the tadpoles. So I just miss them. And then the, the female frog will lay the eggs somewhere. Usually it's like on leaf litter or on a leaf or in these little tadpoles that I have, product made by these guys in France. They lay the eggs in there. Week or a couple of weeks later, the, uh, the eggs hatch into tadpoles. And then the female goes over and finds the tadpoles, encourages them to get on her back, and then she will move them over to a bromeliad where she'll drop them off and then they'll live and she'll come back periodically every few days or so to lay a clutch of eggs. And that's the only thing that the tadpoles eat. So that's another reason why they're much more challenging than an Azurius to really explode in population captivity because the female has to do everything. If she's not laying the eggs, if she's not transporting the eggs, the tadpoles, then the tadpoles aren't going to make it. So she has to be in great shape and a good Hey there, I want to take a quick break to thank this week's sponsors. First, we have Exotics Keeper Magazine, which is a herpeticulture-based magazine out of the UK. Many of you are probably already familiar with them as we had their editor, Thomas Marriott, on a few weeks ago. And it is really a quintessential hobbyist magazine. When you flip through the pages of the monthly magazine, it really does, for me, brings me back to being a kid. I think many of us would have experienced reptiles and amphibians for the first time in either magazine or books. And this just brings me back to those moments. Exotics Keeper magazine provides news, stories, and information surrounding the care and welfare of exotic animals. And you actually recognize quite a few of the authors that write the articles within each issue. Both Roy from Project Herpeticulture and Liam and Ellie from Reptiles and Research have actually contributed to the magazine in the past. I know Roy has an article about Spilodes coming up in a couple of months or it might already be out by the time you're hearing this. So I'm very much looking forward to that. If you are living in the UK for only a couple of bucks a month, you can receive the hard copy of the magazine, which I'm incredibly jealous of because there's something about reading a hard copy that is just so exciting. But for everybody else in the world or for those in the UK, the digital copy of this magazine is free. All you have to do is go to their website, put in your email, and every month the issue will be delivered directly to your inbox and you can flip to the magazine for free, which I've really enjoyed. But I hope that more of us can sign up for the digital copy and show EK that we want that there's enough interest to actually start having the physical copy go out to the rest of the world. So that's my goal with this ad. So very much go check them out. It's an incredible magazine. It really does bring me back to being a child and I'm sure it will with you as well. And the other way you can help support this podcast is by checking out the other sponsor, CustomReptileHabitats.com. That is the incredible enclosures behind me. They were sponsored by Custom Reptile Habitats. If you're looking for more information on them, you can head to the affiliate link in either the show notes or the YouTube description. If you click that link and you end up making a purchase, a commission comes back to me at no extra cost to you. And of course, that is a way you can help support this podcast. Back to the episode. Yeah, and like you said, if 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 that female is unhealthy, and that you know mm-hmm. that's going to be a risk of her not f- fulfilling her role of uh, feeding them eggs. Yeah. One thing that freaks me out with with dart frog people is the amount of misking nozzles that they have. Like when I see your setup, I'm like, oh my god! Like I have a couple nozzles on each of these. I've, of course, I'm not, I'm not soaking everything, but when I just look at just like an arsenal of <laughs> of, of nozzles off of each enclosure, yeah. I think I am uh, the exception. I have way more nozzles than most people do for a specific reason. I've got all of my enclosures in the basement on one misking system, and I keep my little Williams eye in nano tanks that grow out, so they they grow for like two months there before rehoming. And I don't want to water those tanks individually, so I put one misking nozzle in. If I have one misking nozzle in there, then I can only turn it on for a certain amount of time before it floods the enclosure. So that means that if I want to get the appropriate amount of mist in a different enclosure for a frog, which needs more humidity and has different ventilation, then I need to add X number of mist nozzles to make sure they're all getting what they need. But you could get by with two nozzles per cage, definitely, if you're you're spreading them out properly. 
I've spent thousands of dollars on Miss King nozzles. It's crazy. Oh, I can Just imagine. More. So for you, was that just strictly trial and error as far as figuring out how much water is coming out? Yeah. Because that, that's the confusing thing with uh, a misting system. It's, it's hard to know how much water is being misted into the enclosure until you actually watch yeah. it happen and then you're going to adjust it for the next time. Yeah, that's the the great thing about this like quote-unquote bioactive movement where we've got the little substrate layer, the, the drainage layer. So even if you're misting too often, you can watch that water level increase. And then you say, okay, this is not working. I got to change some things. I've gone a little bit further and I've drilled all the tanks so they have a little drainage connected. So even if I'm going too often in certain enclosures, as long as there's enough ventilation, everything's not soggy, soggy wet on the surface level, extra water can just leave and go into my house drain. And, and so is that already plumbed in? Like you don't have to actively go drain them, like twist a, a valve right. or anything? Yeah, this was Troy Goldberg. Most of what I have is kind of a, an homage to Troy Goldberg's setup if you haven't seen his garage but he's drained everything. There's a tube. It's just gravity fed, um, goes through my wall into the, the laundry room drain. So as soon as the water level gets to that point on the wall, it goes out the drainage and, and then I don't have to deal with it. Mm, it's easy yeah. if you have one or two tanks to just leave a little space where you can suck water out. But I was really trying for as much automation as I can, knowing there's some risks with that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then as, as far as the pump you're using, is that, I guess you're using the large Miss King pump? Yeah, the the big like eight hundred dollar pump, whatever it is. I think. It's so is that running the like the three eighth hose or? Mm-hmm. Mm. So I've got, I really, again, way into the automation. I, did, I was tired of filling up buckets, so I connected a flow valve like your toilet can picture to the the RO system in our house. So that's the reservoir for the mist king, and then it goes to the mist king, which goes to the three eighth valve as kind of a backbone, and then on each level of the rack. There's the one quarter inch tubing coming off of the three eighth. Gotcha. So you have an RO system in your basement that's filling a, a reservoir mm-hmm. constantly on a float valve, so it never runs out. Yeah. And, okay. Now it's just yeah, so a challenge it's of not having me. the making sure that the timers work. Mm-hmm. I know, and that's part of the reason I've got these drainage holes hooked up, just in case there's a malfunction. Theoretically, I think that they should be able to drain out in time. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I, I which is really beautiful about your enclosures are the backgrounds. Can you tell us a little bit about mm-hmm. those? I don't know if they're 3D backgrounds or what's the deal with those? Yeah. The, the two nicest ones were made by Phil Ramos of uh, the Green Oasis. He's the guy in, in the GTA, Ontario, Canada here. He makes them, I don't know what, I think it's involved with spray foam and some other mesh-like product. He won't tell anybody. It's a big secret. So I commissioned him to make the two backgrounds for my biggest enclosures. And then the rest are fairly classic stuff like dry lock and the mm-hmm. hydrolon, like the great stuff foam. So if someone's in Canada and actually wants to uh, to, to buy one from Green Oasis, is it is easy to find on Facebook or Instagram? I think so, yeah. It's just the Green Oasis on uh, Facebook or on Instagram. I found the prices very reasonable, particularly with the cost of great stuff nowadays. It's like $20 per can. And you often yeah. need a few cans. Plus the sticks, I I feel like an idiot every time I buy sticks, but sticks are sometimes like $50, just the hard gate to put in there. So I was like adding up all these costs that I spent in the other enclosures that I could just have Phil make it and looks better for a slightly more. Yeah, yeah. Uh, can, can we talk a little bit about, you? you so you have some froglets, some, some, I think it's, is it just the Lamani that you had success breeding or a few others? I have... Uh, Lamani froglet came and went. We sold one from him. And then I have another Picasso froglet. Um, came out of water a couple months ago. And 
I think I had some tadpoles transported from the Sylvatica, the Pataplanca, because I forgot to mention those. They're similar to the Histrionica. So they had two tadpoles develop in the tadpool, the little plastic cup, and then they went missing. So I'm hoping that the female transported them somewhere. It's possible. Maybe an isopod or something ate them or they died and they dissolved and we couldn't see them. And I have another pair of the Picasso who... I think transported two tadpoles yesterday, actually. There were tadpoles growing in there, and now they're gone. Same sort of situation. And the Bahia Solano, I just have the one female, so hopefully I'll have some more success in the future with that one. Gotcha. And then I think it was the Lamani that you were showing me at the expo in Toronto back in September. The The color on the froglet was really intense, mm-hmm. and I think it was even different from the parents, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, that's a big mystery in the frog world. Maybe not a big mystery, but a big problem. If we find Lamani in the wild, it's like fire truck red, the red version, sorry. It looks crazy. It's bright, bright red. You have frog in captivity, same species from same parents, and it's often like a pale orange or sometimes even almost a yellow. So there's a huge difference in how much red pigment is in their skin. So the frogs that I had, the red Lamani, they were pretty orange. The first froglet that came out, he was much more red than the parents. I don't know why, but he was. Um, and then Chris, who's got a the same sort of frog and he's having tons of success with all the froglets most of his froglets were that kind of pale orange as well so i don't know what the reason behind the difference is we're thinking it's probably carotenoids and vitamin a supplementation and that sort of thing but maybe it's also a combination of other things like uvb lighting or the different microfauna that they're eating if you talk to mark pepper from understory enterprises who's a big frog guy in canada He'll say that in the wild, these frogs, they often won't eat the same bug like twice in the same week. There's just such a variety of foods for them. Whereas in captivity, we're giving them fruit flies and they eat this food their whole life. So probably yeah. diet, vitamin A, a bunch of stuff. But it, it's interesting that the babies are coming out really mm-hmm. red. And so I is is the theory that those babies are going to eventually fade into that more of an orange as they age or you don't I know don't what's going to happen? Know. I think some other people will certainly have some more experience than I do with reference to this specifically, but I, in my knowledge or understanding, they generally stay pretty similar. Like I haven't seen a froglet that was very red later on a photo of it that's very orange or much more dilute or vice versa. So I'm hoping and I'm thinking that if they come out pretty red, they stay that red for life, which means that potentially it's something that either the parent frogs were eating or something in the water, something with respect to the eggs, but in the actual development process. The Picasso froglet that I have as well, they're kind of like a yellow and reddish orange. They are, the froglet's a lot more reddish orange than the parents are who are more yellow. So similar sort of thing that I'm experiencing anyway. And I didn't see any difference between like day one for the Lomani versus six months later when I sold them in the red color. So time will tell as you gather more data to mm-hmm. see what's going on there. Well, that's really fascinating. I'm curious for yourself as a vet, do you do things differently in your just herpeticulture practice than just because you're a vet that I don't know what this would be, but that's different from a person who doesn't have the same knowledge base. I think, I mean, there are a few things I always like, I check my temperatures and I use my UVB meter referencing like the general keeper that I would see coming in with one snake. They often might not do that. I'd also I think I'm probably more inclined to do a routine fecal than than the average person would be, maybe because it's a little bit cheaper for me to do it at work as well. But more specifically, I think it comes down to like the general welfare or ethics of them. I see many, many animals that were kept in poor condition for a long time, maybe their whole life. And so 
that's the big reason that I keep these small animals. Seeing how bad I can go, how poorly we're treating them. So I'm really trying to focus on things that I know we can do very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, it's, yeah, it's one of those things, the more you're in the hobby, the more you go, ah, maybe we shouldn't be doing some of this stuff. Yeah. Like the we were chatting a little bit at the last expo. But I mean, size of the animal is a big thing in captivity. It's tough to keep a snake in, a, in an enclosure that's big enough for it or big enough for it if we give it the full length of its body based on the UK guidelines recently. Um, but then another one is the longevity of them. Very, very few people out there want a snake for 40 years. Some do, and I've met especially turtle owners, got the turtle when they're 10 and they're 40 now and they love the turtle and they spend all the money and they've got a, a beautiful enclosure for it. But like the average 10 year old does not want a turtle 30 years later. How many ball pythons are we breeding and selling to other ball python breeders where they don't need them for more than five years or want them for more than five years. So where are these animals going? I don't mm. think that there is a really a, a space for them or a need for them. I think that a lot of the longer lived species, especially larger, longer lived species, they're not living as long as they could be in captivity compared to in the wild. Like they're living better lives in the wild, almost in some circumstances, which sounds absurd because there are no predators in captivity. It should be so easy for us to give them this great, long, beautiful lifespan. Yeah. Well, I, w- I was just talking about this on an episode a couple of weeks ago. It's like the, the, the human brain is not really capable of, of yeah. thinking 20 years or 30 or 40 years down the road. You just, you, you might trick yourself into thinking that. And, and of course, the goal of getting an animal that's going to live 40 mm-hmm. or 50 years is that you have that animal for its entire life. But, but you can't honestly say that you will because you have no idea what your life is going to be like in 20 or 30 years. And it's c- yeah. certainly a massive ethical conundrum that we kind of sidestep quite often in our hobby. Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly guilty of it as well. I don't have the ball python that I did 15, I guess it was 20 years ago now. Um, but it's very tempting to think, oh, that's so cool. I'll have the snake for my whole life. It'll be my little snake buddy. But like, nobody wants that. If you've got a new baby, if you've got a pet, if you've got a family, you've got health issues, which will happen throughout your life. It's very, very challenging to to keep that and be fulfilled and happy that you have it for so long. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think bearded dragons are the perfect reptile for 10 years they're very interactive personable they'll be out all the time snakes especially and like leopard geckos and animals that aren't as active are i think much more at risk for being abused by neglect because you might not notice it it's like sleeping a lot you just think oh it's sleeping you've got something else going on in your life you're not worried about it and then eventually you'll see it out of its hide and it'll be sick because it's been poorly treated for a little while much less likely to happen for a bearded dragon who's out basking looking at you all the time Plus, they don't live as long. So it's it's reasonable to have a 10-year-old kid who has a bearded dragon for 10 to 15 years and enjoy that lizard for the whole time and not feel resentful of it or try to rehome it. Yeah, and I, I imagine, I mean, this is sort of a similar sentiment that rescues will have as well because rescues and veterinarians see the damage, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of us are kind of shielded by that. So you're constantly being, you know, berated by the by you know, the, the issues within our hobby of you know animals that you know a leopard gecko that's going to live 25 years and it's already got an eye problem at three years old yeah and, you know this is just the and that's just a revolving door of, an, of the same issue over and over again mm-hmm. i mean they're so fecund they can we can breed so many leopard geckos i think you've mentioned it before or if you have this clutch of animals you think how many years of life have we created here can we actually 
care for them for all of those years of life. It's challenging. I have like a few clients, elderly people who have asked me to be in their will to take on their tortoises because it's such a, a huge problem. And even they are like, I wish that I didn't have these animals, but I have them now and I need to care for them. Yeah. Is there any other areas that you that you've kind of changed your your mind or or your thought about the herpeticulture in general just through the years of keeping and and being a vet? Yeah, I mean the big one is the size of the animal, longevity of the animal. I think those would be the biggest biggest aspects that have changed now. And I guess when I was a kid, it, I really wanted to like hold the animals and touch them and, and interact with them in that way. And nowadays I have no interest in that at all. I don't mm. want to touch them. I know they don't want me to touch them. Like even a bearded dragon or a snake who probably doesn't mind a lot that you're holding it is not enjoying it. Like they just tolerate it. They're feeling okay about it. So I am really f- moving away from animals that need that sort of interaction or that come with that sort of interaction, partly because I know I don't have the time to like make sure that they continue to be okay with it. You've got to like practice with them and hold them every few weeks or whatever to make sure that they're not getting scared. So that could be another aspect that I guess have changed. But I think many people do as they grow up in the hobby and they're still interested. Yeah, yeah. And just jumping back to the size thing, in your mind, is there a is there a perfect size? I mean, a bearded dragon is still quite a large lizard, right? Yeah. It's still one of the. That's probably on the large end. But is is there a specific size that you think of that you that that would be you know an ideal? Because you see this in the fish world too. It's like, oh, here's here's my right. Oscar, here's my arowana, here's my yeah. giant stingray, and then they're just swimming around, and it's clearly that's not ideal. I think reasonably, bearded dragon or like a Rankin's dragon, slightly smaller, would be just the absolute perfect pet for the average reptile keeper being in most cases, like some random pet owner who's got one lizard at home. I mean, of course, many people end up with a bunch of them later on, but at least from my experience, what I'm seeing is people with a couple of them, one or two. Rangan's Dragon, I don't know why they haven't become more popular. I haven't researched it personally, but it seems like they should be excellent. Just like a bearded dragon, but slightly smaller. Mm-hmm. But I think Bearded dragons, though they are more expensive to care for and definitely more work than a leopard gecko or a ball python or a lot of your other starter pets, just because they're so much more interactive, definitely recommended compared to those other animals. Few people get sick of their bearded dragons after a few months or so, which is very different from your snake. Many people who like feed it once a week and then don't really think about it otherwise. Yeah, which is part of the reason that people end up with giant collections because they want, Mm -hmm. because they in in some ways get bored with the current animal, so they want to get another one. And it's not that they don't like the first one, it's that there's a lack of, uh, a a lack of movement within the within their own hobby and movement. I don't mean the animal movement, just just something to interact with that they can layer on more and more animals because you go, oh, what's what's feeding one more snake? It's really nothing, right? And it it becomes (laughs) very easy to to pile that on. But it is weird to think even the animals behind me, it's like I'm, I'm 31 years old right now. Am I going to be 60, have these same animals? Like I, yeah, it's, it's very right. difficult to, to say that. Yeah, I know it's, it's tough. And I mean, the frogs, we don't know exactly, but they'll probably be 20 years or so in captivity, hopefully be 20 years, maybe more like 10, but 50 years old for that. That's a long time to hold a frog. Keep yeah. Frog. Yeah, exactly. One thing we talked about, I think even just through DMs, uh, maybe around this time last year was just the, the concept of disease testing and NIDO testing and mm. a, how important it is, but B, how difficult it can be to convince someone to pay mm-hmm. for a test, especially if there's someone that's relatively new to reptile keeping say, Oh, I, I'm going to spend 150 or $200 on a NIDO test when getting the result is not going to change anything in a way. Can, can you elaborate on that? 
Yeah, so nidovirus or serpentivirus, however we want to pronounce it nowadays, it's tricky because like a lot of other viruses, many animals will just not at all be sick. They can have this virus for many years and never show any clinical signs, but still be shedding the virus. They're like an asymptomatic carrier, we'd call them. So if we have these animals in captivity, and then we have other animals that are on the opposite end of the spectrum where they get the virus and they become very sick and they can pass away pretty quickly, how do we manage the spread of disease? Just like in people in the COVID virus recently, it's tough to keep track of what's going on if many times out there we can't actually see it's going on. So ideally, anytime somebody gets a new snake, we would test it for nidovirus to see as a general population level what, what is happening and so that that keeper knows that their snake is positive or negative and they can make plans about bringing in snakes or rehoming snakes in the future. If you have one corn snake, for example, your parents let you get it because it's pretty cheap. It can be tough to spend another $100 to get the nidovirus on top of the $100 exam. And especially if I say, okay, if it's positive, I'm not really going to tell you to do anything differently except maybe don't get any other snakes. Or if it's negative, same sort of situation. So it can be difficult for a person in that position to say, why am I doing this? Like I could just keep the snake and it doesn't change anything about what I'm keeping for this one snake. But it's definitely important for big collections because we want to kind of minimize the spread. Realistically, it's probably almost everywhere now. I haven't actually seen the paper, but I've heard it referenced a few times where if you have like more than 10 snakes, there's a 90% chance you've got some kind of viral pathogen in there. Don't quote me on that one. It may be more than that, but I'd love to see the actual paper. Just a way of saying, if we have a lot of snakes, you're very likely to have something. A lot of the things we don't actually know are going on or we can't we can't tell before testing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's it, you think about breeders who have large, like you said, large populations of animals, and and what do they do? I mean, if if they've decided that okay, <laughs> I want to go test, but how, how how can you spend a hundred dollars on uh, you know ten a thousand animals or two thousand animals, however yeah. many you have, you can't do it feasibly, right? So it's just sort of you kind of have to mm-hmm. ignore it in a way. And then ethically, they run into an issue because if they have a positive, that means, okay, now I have to tell everybody that my snakes have nidovirus or there's nidovirus in my collection. They're going to sell a lot fewer snakes or sell snakes for less money. So they are financially disincentivized for testing it. Yeah. So that's why ideally it would be on the acquisition of the animal. We would test it. It's a little bit easier to swallow one snake at a time if you're buying. And then you can know what your, your personal situation is like. A lot of people are pretty lax with their quarantine as well. Less so if you've got a big collection because you might have been through something terrible in the past. But ideally, we should test a few times, keep them in quarantine, and then eventually reintroduce them to your your full collection if you have more. So speaking of quarantine, and obviously with frogs, there's lots of you know fungal issues that can be transmitted. So (laughs) so maybe you could walk through tomorrow. You're going to get a couple of new frogs. What? How do you deal with them as you bring them into Mm -hmm. your home? Because I really only have frogs from Tesoros to Columbia, I've got like one pair of frogs from Wakiri and then the two pairs from here locally. I'm not very strict about the quarantine. I've got a bunch of bins set up. So all of the frogs will temporarily be going into those bins and then a few of them will be shipped off into Alberta on Monday or so. Um, And then, so the last time I brought in frogs, I kept them in bins. I did a renovirus swab and a chytrid swab for all of the frogs. Got those back, got a fecal as well, made sure there were no pressing issues. And then after that point, I introduced them with the knowledge that there's some risk that they may have been a false negative test of some kind, but kind of relying on the 
with people selling them to be reputable, which they are. Yeah, yeah. I c- can you describe what the bin is? A pretty plain, like sterile. Yeah, so it's like I don't know, maybe eighteen by ten inches, uh, something like eight inches tall, maybe ten inches tall. A little bit of substrate on the bottom and just a ton of leaf litter, like two or three inches of leaf litter in there. Ideally, there might be some more perching areas and opportunities as well. As well. And if I had them for longer, I would certainly provide that more than a few days in the bin. I'd give them some more things to do in there. But it's <laughs> it's more exciting than the average ball python rack, even the little bit. Yeah, yeah. It's just so that I can sterilize the bin after if I need to or when I need to, I can get rid of the substrate. But there's also stuff for the frog to hide in different microclimates for humidity and temperature. And and so as far as keeping frogs for the average keeper, where, where does that overlap with the vet world as far as, you know, what, what should keepers be doing? You know, are they, should they be bringing frogs in for checkups or having a vet come see their collection? You know, like there's certain <laughs> things. Funny questions. Yeah. You know, like it doesn't seem, they're, they're so sensitive. It seems strange to put them into a bin and take them to the vet. Yeah. But And then also like what, what are some things that they should watch for as far as, you know, health issues? Watching for anything strange, the big thing is usually weight loss. If your frog is losing weight, there's maybe an issue. First, I'd start off by checking your temperatures, making sure there's nothing strange going on with your supplements, replacing them. Always, always do a fecal because they can have so many of these little parasites. And sometimes they are pretty easy to manage. Of all the things that can make an animal sick, the parasites are often one of the easier things to manage. Um, So watch for weight loss. If there's any chance that something's going on or you're worried at all, do a fecal. And then if they truly are looking sick after that, ideally we would have them seen by a vet. And in the short term, keep them in a little quarantine tub so that you can watch them closely. You can make sure they're eating. You can watch them defecating. You can get another fecal if you need to or a fecal that you know is clean and new. Um, Control their environment a little bit more. If we have frogs that look fine and you have no issues at all, it's not a bad idea to go to a vet, but I would be, it comes with pros and cons. Some vets will do a, house calls or telemedicine where we would just chat over the phone. I might do that first if you have no issues, and then you can establish the vet client patient relationship over the phone, say, okay, then we can do a fecal because legally we can't just take in a fecal from an animal we have never seen before, run it and tell you if there's something going on. So we do a phone call, maybe a fecal after that, and then kind of periodically checking in. If you're an experienced keeper, which a lot of people are, if you have a few of the frogs, then it may not be all that necessary to see a vet every year, but it's never a bad idea. Reptile is a little bit different. I probably want to see them every year or so. Yeah, yeah. So if you've talked to your vet on the phone, that counts as seeing the animal enough in order to run the fecal? Or Things is that may a gray change. Area? During COVID, they really loosened the restrictions a bit because it was so difficult to bring people in. So during that, yeah, we could have a telemedicine phone call appointment, and then we would be legally allowed to, at least in Ontario, do fecal and sometimes even do some prescriptions over the phone Mm. sent to a pharmacy, that sort of stuff. So I'd call and see if that's a feasibility. I know there's people in Ottawa are doing something with an emphasis on reptiles telemedicine. Yeah, I've done, I did something similar with a snake. I think it must have been during COVID, one of my carpet pythons, mm-hmm. I wanted a fecal done and and they initially wanted to see the snake, but then eventually I was able to just convince them to let me bring in the fecal, <laughs> you know, because I was kind of like, I don't yeah. really want to bring the snake in if there's no need to bring in the snake. It's yeah. kind of a hassle. I would rather mm-hmm. just start with the fecal and then if there's something that pops up, then I'm happy to bring the snake in, but then yeah. it's kind of like a double trip for no reason. I, I know that the yeah, vets I mean, want to see the animal because there's, you know, the lumps and bumps situation. And that sometimes that's an issue. During 
COVID or the height of COVID with the restrictions. I did a handful of telemedicine appointments and I saw patients after they had telemedicine appointments elsewhere. And I saw at least two cases that were misrepresented. There was, we didn't know, the vet didn't know what was going on over the phone. The animal came in shortly after and died because it was way sicker than anybody thought it was. So there's a huge room for error there. Ideally, that's why we're so adamant about seeing patients in person to make sure that things are going okay before doing the prescriptions. Mm -hmm. I heard one horror story about a, a male cat that had a urethral obstruction. He wasn't able to pee. Over the phone, nobody could figure out what was going on. The owners didn't really have a, a clear story. And then the bladder ruptured or the cat died from electrolyte issues. So it's very important when asked to, to bring them in. But sometimes, especially if you're like, oh, it's pretty fine. There's no real issues that I can tell. It's just a little bit off. Start with a phone call, maybe fecal, and kind of go from there based on the recommendation. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's the virtual world is not as convenient as many people think. I mean, we're doing a virtual conversation right now, so that's awesome. But, but there's, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't, it's not a substitute for the real thing and seeing an animal in person, especially yeah. if you're someone who's used to looking at animals every day as a vet, as you would be, you can pick up on things that the first time yeah. snake keeper is going to have absolutely no clue about. Mm-hmm. I mean, like that blocked cat, if we saw it for five seconds at clinic, we would know it's blocked very different story over the phone. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Is there anything else as far as amphibians go that jump out for things that, that people should should watch for or consider? I mean, the weight loss is always the biggest one. Red leg is pretty like a hot topic a lot of the time. Essentially, we just think it's like a bacterial infection or there's signs of bacterial infection, kind of like sepsis or septicemia. So if there's any kind of color changes to your animal that you're not expecting, I would have them seen for that as well. Um, is treating them fairly not simple, like not just ordinary. specifically for that, but just in general? Not really. No, for red leg, especially the, I think few patients recover from it if we're truly seeing it. And I don't mean to scare people with that one because some frogs will just have slightly reddening of their legs and it's something completely different or it's like physiologically normal. They're always like that. Uh, but if they truly are septic or have like bacteria or something else in their bloodstream, then it's a very difficult thing to overcome. Bloat, I guess, is pretty similar. You might see posts or hear talk, people talking about frogs that are bloated that just seem to like blow up like a balloon overnight. A few things that it can be, we often wonder about, again, sepsis or like bacterial population within their bloodstream or their body or kidney disease, essentially a problem with like how well their body is managing the, um, the concentration. So if the frog, because their skin is permeable, they can take water in and lose water through their skin. There's concentration in their body isn't appropriate. It can cause fluid to keep coming into their skin, which causes the frog to blow up. Mm. Um, so that can be very challenging to treat, but I would watch for it. Sometimes we do find success with medications. Yeah, yeah. I a couple it was a couple of years ago. I, I had a family member send me a photo of their child's axolotl. Like, I think something's yeah. wrong with this thing, and it looked like a freaking blimp in in the enclosure, like in, in the <laughs> in the, in the aquarium. I'm like, oh my god, that is like you got to get that thing to the vet now if it's not already dead. Yeah. Like, it looked it looked dead. Yeah. I don't think it was, but it was just this giant blimp looking Michelin man with these arms sticking out. I mean, <laughs> that's that's not ideal. Yeah, I had a little tiny thumbnail frog a long time ago that bloated up and then I treated it with some antibiotics and it, it recovered and, and lived for a long time. Yeah, so it, it can it can be treated. Do, do you see yeah. other things like, I mean, it's like you mentioned birds, but what about like fish and inverts? Are those things mm-hmm. that pop in once in a while? That's really the only 
line we haven't crossed. So I don't see anything aquatic. I don't see axolotls either. Logistically, it's challenging because we'd have to keep a bunch of water on hand for this like one axolotl patient every six months that we might see. Yeah. So same story with fish, except euthanasia. So we can almost always make some sort of accommodations because it's often an emergency and no inverts either. I never, I never really got into them. I think they're very cool. I had a wolf spider as a kid for a little while, but I don't know anything about their medicine. I think it may be challenging. I know they have issues shedding sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, will people try to bring those in? And you guys say we don't look, we don't, uh, you know, I take get a them few in. calls. I want to say in the six years that I've been a vet there, we might have had like two calls about a, a tarantula. Okay. Occasionally we'll get fish and axolotl every six to 12 months. Somebody will call about, but we don't get a lot of them. If you yeah. have a sick fish or something like that, though, then often if you look online, you'll you'll find like a big exotic hospital, which would be us. So we would probably get most of the calls. So yeah, Ontario yeah. or many of them. Makes sense. And of course, like we had mentioned at the beginning of the uh, the episode, you also, you know, and you'd mentioned at one point too, uh, Dion's vet. So you get to see some of his animals. Yeah. And I think Mike too, I, I'm not sure how often you're seeing their animals, but I know yeah. that the, you are their, their resource and, and their vet. Yeah. <laughs> I see Dion's pretty often because he has quite a few of the animals. I mean, he's got many more things to watch for. And so we'll, I'll see them occasionally. He's also a bit of a worrier. So often he'll think that something's going on and it's okay. Um, Mike's I see a little bit less though, mostly because he's a bit farther away. But yeah, we'll see some animals for like issues shedding or issues, not, sorry, not issues shedding, issues eating or diarrhea, that kind of thing. We can organize some diagnostics. Yeah. So if anyone's wanting to see you in action, they can find those videos on those channels because <laughs> yeah. you can see you in the clinic doing the, doing your thing. Uh, Dr. Brown, is there anything else that we didn't discuss today that you that you wanted to make sure we mentioned before we wrapped up? I think the, I think that was mostly everything. I guess the one thing that I always try to mention is that really recommend against keeping tortoises in Canada because of all the things we talked about. They're so big, they're so long-lived, and more specifically because we can't keep them outside at all here. We can for a few months, but not for most of the time. And they need at least a lot of them pretty specific humidity and heat requirements. So people will get a sulcata tortoise or even a redfoot and think, oh, keep it in my house. It'll be in my little house tortoise. But that means most of the time it's not under proper basking temperatures. It's not in appropriate humidity. So I've never seen an adult sulcata or redfoot tortoise that I thought was looking in, in good shape. It's a bit of a soapbox and it's a bit controversial, but I almost think that tortoises should be like illegal in Canada. Perhaps not illegal, but very difficult to acquire either by some kind of permit system or being extremely expensive. So something to minimize the number of people who see this adorable little tortoise out there and then decide to bring it home. Yeah. Well, I know there obviously there are some smaller species like Egyptian tortoises and whatnot that stay really small, mm -hmm. but you're right. There's such a gravitation towards picking yeah. up larger species, especially when you get into sulcatas that just, you, you, it's just not going to yeah. work in your basement. I've seen more than one person in an apartment building with a sulcata tortoise. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. I don't know. So no, I think that's a, that's a really good point. If anyone's looking to see photos or anything or little clips of, of your own uh, um, reptile room or your amphibian room, can you let everybody know where that they can find that on Instagram? Yeah. Uh, Instagram, I'm at alecbrowndvm. And then I made some of the YouTube videos from Reptiliatus, Dion, and Alpha Reptile, Mike Tatula. Those would be the, the major places. Awesome. So people I have a, a link to there. my website as well with a couple things on the Instagram. So it's pretty easy to find. Okay, perfect. And as always, please don't use Dr. Brown as a vet resource, but if yeah. you, have, you know, frog questions or Ufaga questions, I'm sure you're happy to uh, engage with that. 
Yeah, happy to chat about kind of general questions, but legally not permitted to do veterinary advice over the phone over Messenger. Happy to see an animal in person if you're living locally. Um, if you do want to do that, then I just call the clinic and ask to book an appointment with me. I've got two Dr. Browns, so Alec Brown. Awesome. All right. Well, Alec, thank you so much for this. This was fantastic. I'm glad we were able to finally do this. I and mean, you were on a kind of a, uh, the episode a little bit at the CRBE when we did the live show, but that wasn't a right, real yeah. episode. So it's great to have you on for real and we'll definitely do another one in the future. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks again for having me. I've been a fan for quite a few years now. I think it's a great what you're doing here. All right. That is the end of that episode. Dr. Brown, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I had a blast chatting with you. And of course, every time I see you in Ontario at the Canadian Reptile Breeder Expo, it's always a blast as well. And that's one thing we actually didn't talk about is the role that Dr. Brown plays for the Reptile Expos. And if you do want more information on that, I know that he just recorded a podcast as well just a couple of days ago for me, um, recording this right now with Dan from the AmphibiCast. So go check that out. I haven't listened to it myself, but I know that is the topic of their discussion is Alex's role or Dr. Brown's role at the expo and how he makes sure that everything is being done ethically and well so that's going to be a fascinating episode it's on my list of things to listen to this week so hopefully i can point you in that direction if you haven't listened to it already listeners thank you so much for listening to the podcast if you enjoyed this one make sure you share it on social media or instagram or facebook if you want to support the podcast further you can do that over at patreon.com slash animals at home there you have early access to the episodes most of the time sometimes like a couple weeks ago i basically posted it on patreon and live at the same time because it had been a, a while since I posted because I'm trying to get back into the swing of things here but generally you get early access to episodes you also immediately get access to the discord server and have conversations with like-minded keepers you can also check out customreptilehabitats.com there's an affiliate link in both the YouTube description and the show notes if you use that affiliate link and make a purchase a commission comes back to me at no extra cost to you which is another way you can support the show and that is it I will catch everybody next episode